Ledger is a writing podcast and is the nightlight you need when the darkness takes over. I'm Austin Wilson. I'm your host. And today I talked with Tim Wagoner. Tim is an author of horror novels, a lot of them. Uh, he's also done media tie-in novels. He's done the official novelization of Halloween Kills. He's written in the world of Dungeons and & Dragons and Alien and Stargate SG-1 and Supernatural. Um, he has done a lot of stuff. Uh, how he ended up on this show and me talking to him is because he wrote two books about writing. Uh, they're called Writing in the Dark and Writing in the Dark, the workbook. They are companion pieces, uh, but you can also read them separately. I read the first Writing in the Dark by itself uh, after attending the Writing in the Dark Symposium, which was an, an online course, a sort of convention I went to virtually. It was amazing. I got to read the book, um, got to see some cool chats with, with other authors and, and other writers talking about the craft of writing and the thing that we love and the reason why I do the show, you know, it's, it's writing. So, uh, I read writing in the dark and I fell in love with it and legitimately felt like it changed a few fundamental things about how I was thinking about my work, uh, how I was interacting with it, how I was planning it out. Um, and after, after I finished reading it that first time, I knew I really wanted to talk to Tim. Uh, and luckily, I, I, I was able to make that ha happen thanks to Raw Dog Streaming Press and, and their entire team. They're, they're all amazing. Um, and legitimately, so I, I finished reading the book, finished reading Writing in the Dark. Um, I was already planning on submitting to, a, to an anthology, a story that I was writing. And reading Tim's book changed the process of me writing that story completely. Um, I ended up getting it to a place that I was insanely happy with. Um, I've sent it to the anthology. I don't know yet if it's gotten uh, accepted or rejected. And honestly, it kind of doesn't even matter at this point because I felt like the the experience of doing it was so different and so amazing that whatever happens, I, I win. You know, I I've learned new things about myself and, and about my writing. So no matter what happens with that story, I've already gotten to a point where I feel like I have achieved something noteworthy. I hate, I hate, you know, I hate talking about wins and loses or losses uh, with writing, but um, that's how much I think Writing in the Dark is a book that you should read if you're a writer. If you're a horror writer, definitely. If you're not a horror writer, there's going to be stuff in it that might not apply to you, but there's so much great advice for how to approach your writing and uh, great exercises, great uh, quotes from other writers talking about how they do things, what they think writing horror and dark fantasy and suspense um, can do. Uh, and the good thing, this Tim mentions this in the book too, some of that uh, advice and some of that information contradicts each other, you know, because no one has the, the answer. There is no answer like Tim talks about in this very episode you're about to listen to. You know, there is no answer you're going to find that makes your writing easy, or that makes your writing work all the time. Um, one thing that, that Tim and I talk about is if, if you are not failing and if you are not challenged, then potentially you have found a system that is so easy uh, that you don't have to push yourself. And that's not what you want. You know, you want your writing to be challenging because you want to continually get better. Hopefully that's one thing that this show can help you with. I really think that that's 
something that writing in the dark and the writing in the dark workbook can help you with. Uh, I legitimately recommend both of them as highly as possible. Um, so yeah, buckle in for the uh, conversation with Tim. Uh, we talk about his teaching. We talk about, uh, you know, does he have that morning after, you know, fear like, Oh my God, is that idea stupid? Did I, should I not have written it? Can I stop and go do something else now? Uh, a lot of stuff is covered, and uh, he really does have a lot of awesome inspirational advice and ideas, and he's learned a ton uh, over his career. And, and he's won multiple Bram Stoker Awards, uh, even Writing in the Dark. You know, it received the 2020 Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Fiction. Um, and I, I really believe it's 100% earned. The book's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, here's Tim Wagoner and, and myself talking about writing. Um, it's not too scary, but, you know, everybody's scared by different things. So who knows? Maybe you'll be terrified, but hopefully not. So enjoy the episode. Did you already write today? Have you have you written today? Not today. Probably that's all day tomorrow since I don't have to go teach. Yeah, that was one big thing I wanted to ask you about was balancing the teaching and the, and the writing uh, for yourself um, and timing things out. How do you, how do you, is it really... I know I'm teaching on Monday, so Tuesday is going to be a ride all day kind of day. Sometimes what I try to do is get up at like five in the morning so I can write for several hours before I have to teach. Oh, um, wow. Just didn't, didn't manage it today. <laughs> I'm still a little tuckered out from StokerCon, I think. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, is that something you've always done? You like wake up early or was that a teaching kind of shifted thing? Yeah, it's just something that I did. You know, actually, when I was like uh, behind on deadlines one time, I just started doing it. And then I realized that it, it follows a basic principle I've used before, which is that if you write first thing in the morning, nothing can take it away, no matter what else happens during the day. And um, yeah, honestly, I've been, I've been a night person most of my life. But once I had kids, they, I didn't sleep much at all when they were little. And then, you know, I found myself matching their schedule for school. And my wife goes to bed early. And if I go to bed early with her, early to me is like 10 or 1030. Uh, I can get up at five without too much trouble. And so, yeah. And since I'm behind on a deadline now, I need to, <laughs> I need to get started getting up again and waking up so I can get some writing done. How far behind are you? If you don't mind saying, you don't have to. Uh, you know, I got a couple weeks to finish this book up and it's got, it's about half written. So, and I, I know the story really well, so we'll see. I may not quite make the deadline, but hopefully I won't go too far past it. Well, let's talk about deadlines. Um, that's not something I've really covered too much yet uh, on the past episodes. Um, uh, you're right. If uh, Is it a novel that you're, that yeah. you're working on? Yeah. Yep. Um, what was the deadline? How, how does that process work when you, you know the project's coming together? Um, the de- is the deadline something that you guys work out in the contract ahead of time? How, do, how does that come together for you now? Yeah, it's worked out in the contract ahead of time. And, you know, usually in my case, I have an agent that negotiates those things, but she asks me, when do I think I can have it done? And then she adds two months to that just in case. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, we work with whatever the editors, I mean, the publisher schedule is too. And we just kind of hammer it out. And, uh, you know, as I go along, I try to, plot out how many pages I need to do a day in order to get it done. And then I try to stick to that if I can. If I do a little less, I don't worry about it. If I do a little more, I don't worry about it. Um, yeah. If I'm behind, then I you know I haven't done it yet, but probably tonight or tomorrow, I'm going to plan out how many I need to get done to 
hit the deadline. And even if I don't quite hit it, you know, that should, you know, keep me on track enough to be pretty close. Prior to having an agent, did you do your own like contract negotiations as far as deadlines go? How did that work out? And where in your career did you get an agent when you were like, Oh, now I can hand all this stuff over to them. I've had um, three agents in my career. Yeah. So yeah, the first one was only for a couple of years. He couldn't sell anything. So we just parted amicably. Uh, the second one I had for like 19 years. Uh, and then he uh, got ill and passed away. And then the one I have now I've had for about 10 years. So honestly, I've, I, every, every time I've got a novel contract, I've always had an agent. Oh, um, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's worked out pretty good. Um, what was the process like for you? Was it a easy process to get? When did it come as far as, um, you're submitting stuff professionally? Was that, when did you decide, okay, now I definitely need an agent? Had you already sold some stuff or, or where did, where did that happen for you in your career? Yeah, I had maybe sold just a few, you know, short stories to small presses. And I had had, like a lot of people, I had several novels I wrote. They're my learning novels, you know, that I would never, never send out anywhere. But, you know, I got one done. It was uh, when I finished graduate school. I used it as my thesis. And I thought it was pretty decent. And so I started seeking agent at that point. Just because the common wisdom then was, I mean, there was no self-publishing the way it is now. Um, small press wasn't as strong or as numerous as it is now. So it really was once you got a novel, you should get an agent was kind of the common wisdom. I mean, now you got, you know, you don't need an agent to approach small press publishers and you certainly don't need one to self publish. So, you know, back then I might've chosen a different route. I don't know, but so yeah, it's, I just decided at that point to, to start trying looking for an agent. When did teaching uh, figure into all of that? Because uh, you also teach um, currently at a, at a college. Right. Yeah, I I started out college as an acting major and realized really quickly that I did not have the passion for it. Yeah. But I turned that question around and asked myself, what was my passion? And I realized it was writing. I've been writing all my life, kind of for stories. It was so natural to me. I didn't think to make it a career, really. And so I switched to um, theater education because – I like, I still like theater. Um, I like teaching. Um, even though I hadn't done it, I like the idea of teaching. Plus my secondary major was teaching English. So I'm like, those are the three things I like the most. I'll, fi- I'll figure career stuff out by the end of four years, I hope. And I like teaching well enough that I didn't want to teach in high school. That was for sure. Uh, but I thought teaching in college would be good. So I went on and got my master's degree so I could do that. And my plan was to teach part-time, you know, while I wrote. But as the years went by, I just fell in love more and more with teaching. And plus, you know, full-time, you get benefits and all that good stuff. So I just started looking for a full-time job. But I've pretty much been teaching since I was like 22 or 23, and I'm, you know, 58 now. Yeah. Well, I was introduced uh, to your work because of your teaching. Um, You've written a ton of stuff. Um, Horror novels for yourself. You've written media tie-ins. The official Halloween Kills novelization. You've written uh, a book for Alien um, for, uh, a nightmare on Elm street, dungeons and dragons, Stargate SG one, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but for me, it was really the writing in the dark books, um, that brought you into my life. Um, and those were the things that, I mean, honestly, I, I read writing in the dark probably, uh, two weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point. Um, I'm rereading it currently. And I was lucky enough to have an advanced reader copy sent of the workbook, as well. Um, and those two go together insanely well. Um, t- 
teaching writing, how, what's your journey been like teaching writing specifically? And there's a lot of amazing knowledge and awesome inspiration and, and all kinds of guidance in these two books. What's been your journey like collecting all of that stuff? Well, when I was an undergrad, um, I had worked in the writing lab at the college where I was at. Um, I, I happened to be just getting, I didn't know where the writing lab was. I was in the hallway drinking from a drinking fountain and uh, uh, an acting major who was also in my creative writing class just happened to be standing in the hallway and he goes, hey, you, you can write, come in here. <laughs> he just kind of dragged me on in and said, this guy's good, let's give him a job. And so I just fell into it by accident. But, you know, you work one-on-one in a situation like that. You're a writing tutor. And one of the things I found was, I mean, of course, it's the, the biggest thing was the satisfaction of helping somebody. But it was the challenge of trying to figure out how to explain concepts and writing to other people and how much I learned from doing that. And so I realized it was like win-win. I was learning a ton and I was helping people. And plus, you know, I got a little tiny paycheck for <laughs> working sure. in the, the writing lab. But it was the fact that I could help people and learn a ton that was the biggest thing. And then um, I think at that point, I was also reading Writer's Digest and uh, the mystery writer Lawrence Block had a column on fiction writing back then. And I just loved the way he wrote. Uh, it was, you know, very personable. You know, he kind of wrote as if he was speaking to the reader. Um, and uh, that really made me think about writing about writing. Um, and then late, once we had graduate school, you know, you know I, I did a little bit of that in classes and things like that. But I was always fascinated with uh, the how to write books, especially the ones written by actual writers, not, right. not by people that are just writing the book without ever having written anything. Yeah. And I, I would think that, you know, as much as I had learned from uh, tutoring and then later on teaching writing, uh, I thought, you know, I'd learn an awful lot probably by doing a how to write book. And I was uh, years ago, I was talking to uh, Tom Monteleone, who wrote The Idiot's Guide to Writing a Novel, along with all kinds of you know horror novels, dark fantasy novels of his own. And he was talking about how much he learned about when you have to explain this and you have to lay it all out. And yeah, you know that kind of stuff, but you learn it in a different way by working through it. And uh, so I'm like, okay, one of these days, my goal was if I ever learn enough, if I ever feel I'm ready, I want to write at least one book on writing. But I wasn't sure what kind to do. So eventually I just focused on horror writing because I feel like that's what I know the best. Yeah. When, uh, so the, the newest one, the, the Writing in the Dark workbook, um, expands on the, the uh, exercises that you have in the, in the first volume, which is just called Writing in the Dark. Um, and one thing I, I, was, I was reading the workbook, and uh, there's an intro by horror writer Michael Arnzen, and he, he talks about not falling prey to head writing that you actually have to get your pen to the page or your fingers on the keys. Um, and it, it kind of brought another concept into mind, one that you talk about pretty quickly after that, which is visualization. And you cover this in the book somewhat, but I really want to know your, your thought process behind skirting that line, that like elegant line between head writing where you're not doing anything, but you're like, man, this is a cool idea. And then actually getting to the page. How do you balance and when are you tipping one way or the other uh, and not doing what you should be doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think whatever keeps the word, words going. Yeah. You know, it, it, if, if you're in your head all the time and nothing's coming down on the page, 
maybe not instantly, but you know, after days, weeks, you're still just thinking about your story, then you need to get your hands on the keyboard. Uh, if your hands are on the keyboard, but nothing's coming out, maybe it's because you haven't spent any time, you know, living with your story in your head or visualizing it. Um, the visualizing works really well for me. I always thought early on, I thought something was wrong with me because they would, people would say, here's how you write. You do this, you do that. You do all these multiple drafts. And I'm like, I think about it a lot. I'll write notes to myself and outlines or whatever. And then when I sit down to write, it seems like it comes together pretty quickly, but I've spent a lot of pre-writing time. Uh, and so it, it really depends on where you get your energy. Do you get it from pre-writing and then composing, or do you get it from composing and then revising? I don't usually find people that do like all of it, get their energy from all of it. Uh, and you might get your energy from one stage of the process or another, depending on the project. So. That's one of the things I like about your book is you're very honest and you, and you say like, this isn't the way, like this is a way, you know, I'm presenting the things that I, you know, I've learned. Um, is it really just trial and error? Like, is that one of the things that you've used the most where you're just like, at some point you didn't know what worked. So you're just like, I just need to get words on a page and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. The, I mean, the only real right ways to become a writer is read a bunch, write a bunch, and then get some feedback on your work. And just continue to try to grow throughout the course of your career. Um, but there are people that have, you know, who, who have kind of explored pathways for you that can decrease your learning curve. And sometimes they can tell you stuff where you're like, I'm going to do the exact opposite. But the <laughs> fact that you heard that thing in the first place is what got you to that realization. So people looking for the answer, they, they're not going to find it. There's one writer I have worked with her on and off for maybe 20 years. And still hasn't published a novel. He's always looking for like the answer, the formula, yeah. something that's going to give her what she needs. And, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing to, to, to compare to just the, the writing of it, to just the doing of it. Yeah. But other things can help, uh, you know, as long as, you know, with, with the writing books, if, if all it does is kind of get people thinking about writing or kind of just, you know, encourages them and gives them some energy and they go off and do stuff in their own way. That's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the great thing about being a teacher. You always win no matter what. So if your <laughs> students follow what you do and succeed, you've won. If they yeah. go and succeed on your own, you've won too, because you don't care how they succeed. You just want <laughs> them to succeed. Right. There's a, I forget, I think it's in the movie adaptation of Wonder Boys where Grady Tripp, uh, the character's talking about, you help the ones who, who quote unquote don't got it and you help the ones who do because that's all you can do. It's just like show up to help them. And then right. whatever happens, happens. They're the ones who have to go right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you really, you really are kind of re a resource person along the way because we're all our first best teacher and the people are just there to help us. And I think the sooner that people can kind of come to terms with that and realize that I think the, the better off they are learning. I think most people kind of get that when they become adults, you know, we're marched through kind of standardized learning throughout our lives up until about 18. And then yeah. after that, hopefully people figure that out. Well, one thing your book did that, uh, that told, that told me that helped me personally, um, ne never settle for your first idea. Now, it seems like such a simple concept, but I, I had realized that over the course of some of the writing that I had done, there had been moments where I was too willing to be like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to do it and not just continue exploring. Um, how often do you come up with an idea and then be like, OK, but I'm going to come up with five or six more. Like, is that 
every project where you're like, I have this idea, but let's see what happens over the course of however long to, to see what the idea does. Yeah, I'd say it happens pretty much uh, all the time, uh, especially if I'm writing an original novel where I can change stuff. If you do a tie-in, you usually have the, the concept and then an outline approved by both the editor and then whoever represents the IP holder, like it, it's a studio or whatever, and they pretty much expect you to turn in what they've agreed to. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean you can't change some things, but you're not changing big stuff. But if I do a novel of my own, sometimes I'll have a, uh, I'll have an outline and then never look at it when I sit down to write. <laughs> Yeah. And if I come to an idea, I'll keep, a- you know, I'll keep asking, come to a, a scene or a character or whatever is what else can I do to make this different? Can make it better or make it fit with what's come to for better. And it's, it's a good thing to try to do just because, you know, we live in a media saturated world and right. so many of the ideas we come up with without realizing it are just recycling stuff that's been done before. Right. Yeah. Um, you even talk about, I think, it's in one of your voices, of dark, uh, voices from the shadows pieces, which uh, for listeners in both versions of writing in the dark, you have um, consulted other writers to ask them specific questions about, you know, what makes good dark fantasy horror, how, what are some writing craft tips? Uh, Wendy Wagner talks about readers of genre fiction now coming to your story um, with very specific expectations that like, they know what a horror novel is going to do. So how do you trick them? So to speak, like, do you think genre, we talked about this a little bit and, or I saw some people talk about this at StokerCon in some of the panels is genre just marketing or is it a helpful tool? Like how, how much does genre control as a, as opposed to just define? Well, you know, in a lot of ways, they're like a painter with colors. I mean, the genre elements are things you work with. Yeah. And orange is orange. It doesn't matter what people think about it or call it. It is what it is. But it's what you do with it that matters. So if you have readers, or I guess in this case, viewers, that would expect a lot of orange in a certain kind of painting, and you don't give them that, they won't in their minds think of it as that kind of painting. And that can make, uh, you know, marketing more difficult. And maybe not the creating of it. But all, but but the creating is easier if you know. Okay, these are the like the primary colors, and they're the ones that people like the most, or the ones I like the most. Maybe you grew up with those colors, so it's the same thing with genre. You know, it it can help give you some guidance out of all the stuff in the world you could write. You're like, oh, I could do a first contact book, and then you're like, okay, that's been done before. So what if I do a fifth contact? Like maybe the this particular, these two civilizations keep breaking up for whatever reasons over the course of centuries. And so now maybe it's the last chance for them to get together before they go to war and completely annihilate each other. And then (laughs) you have a different story just because, you know, I've taken the genre expectation, but all I've done is say, okay, first is a number. So what if I did fifth and then see what that happens. And so you can still take things that are recognizable to people. So they feel comfortable with your book, or at least it gets them into your book. Even if it starts becoming wildly original after that. Yeah. But it's also a good way to market it so that, you know, your readers can find it. Otherwise you just write what you want to write and then see what the hell happens. You know, what audience that you find and how it connects. Yeah. Well, uh, Maurice brought us uh, he's actually an Indiana writer. So um, he was talking at StokerCon about how he wrote a, a book and it has, you know, it's filled with zombies. And then uh, the publisher was like, yeah, this is an urban fantasy novel. He's like, what? This is a horror novel. There's zombies everywhere. <laughs> and, that shift um, was was one of the things, you know, generating the conversation around like how marketing works 
with genre. Right. Um, but like you said, as you're writing it, I don't know. It's sometimes it feels dangerous to be like, well, I'm definitely writing a horror novel, but also what else can you think <laughs> as right. you're writing a novel filled with zombies, you know? Right. And sometimes you end up in a, a sort of a, a, a brand that you didn't expect. Right. And you're like, Oh, suddenly I'm urban fantasy. Okay, fine. Uh, yep. And I, I remember when, uh, after Caitlin Kiernan's, a number of her novels had come out and they were, I think they came out from rock, the publisher, and they were in trade paperback and they were made to look kind of literary. And then urban fantasy got hot and they got republished in regular paperback size. And it was always the thing about here's the torso, you know, the woman's torso on the cover. That was the thing. And they had the font and everything. They didn't change the books in the slightest. All they changed was the packaging, you know, yeah. deciding how to, how to market it at that point. And so, you know, I've seen things like that happen over the years as books come back out and they rebrand them or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it's ultimately, you know, a story is what the, the writer and the reader call it. You know, what, how, how they view it is where it gets slotted. Yeah. And uh, sort of connected to those expectations about of readers coming to your, your work. Um, I really liked something you said. Uh, I think it was in Chapter 19, which is called There Are No Limits But in the first Writing in the Dark book. Um, you talk about how you're an older writer now, um, and you're less self-centered and, uh, than you were. Um, but you still, you know, you think of your work, but you know that your work can have an effect in the real world. Um, kind of walk me through how, maybe how you got to that point or what that means to you, um, as far as the ways that your writing can affect the real world. Yeah. One, somewhere along the line, whether it was in like a literature classes or reading on my own or watching people who would say things like video games, art cannot have a bad effect. And then they turn around and talk about all the great effects it can have. And I'm like, right. there's nothing in the world that's always positive. If you can you say a form of art can have a positive effect, it could also have a negative. Um, it's like a knife. It all depends on how you use it. Um, and of course, different people will react in different ways. And that doesn't mean that you should self-censor necessarily, but you should be aware, you know, that you are using a knife, you are wielding it. And, you know, it's, you want to be careful about the effect it might have on people. Um, so, you know, in my original horror novels, they're filled with all kinds of stuff uh, in terms of from quiet horror to extreme horror and splatter, splatter punk and everything in between, because I like to just do everything. Yeah. But I think about in terms of um, what I'm portraying, you know, um, one of the things we see it as a tradition in terms of creating monsters is distortion of a human physical form. The monsters are often distorted humans. Right. And then that, then you're like, OK, is that ableist? Is it the kind of thing where, you know, is is like Captain Hook ableist, you know, because right. he's got his hook? And that's part of what makes him a villain, kind of. I mean, like Disney's terrible at it. All their villains are like have a disability of some sort um, or something that makes them different than the, the pretty hero and the, the pretty hero, heroine. Um, so I try to watch for that kind of thing, especially how I describe stuff. Um, I was on a Stoker Con. I was on a panel about psychological horror and we were talking about, you know, how do you write psychological horror without basically saying anybody who's mentally ill can be super dangerous. Right. You know, and the truth are that mentally ill people are the vast, vast majority of them are no danger to anyone except maybe themselves. And so what do you do then? Um, and so, yeah, I've just become a lot more aware of that kind of thing. Um, sometimes what I'll do is I'll like have characters talk about some of these issues 
not like in terms of storytelling, obviously, but but something that will bring that up. So at least it kind of balances things out a little bit. I might tone things down a little bit, how I, I do them. I might change a description. Like if I find myself uh, uh, in the writing in the dark work, workbook, I put in a story of mine and kind of go through it to see uh, a current or current story because I did a, like my one of my very first ones I went through in writing in the dark. And as I was going through this story, I was like, Oh my God, I, I described uh, one of these characters, a character and her kids is having like, kind of like port wine stains on their faces, but they were pulsing just to show that they were like some kind of other creature. And then when I went back and read the story for the workbook, I'm like, Oh my God, there I am being able describing it as a completely benign condition that a lot of people might look at and think, Ooh, you know, and be prejudiced against somebody in real life. So I just changed that description. Um, so yeah, I'm still learning. We all are. And, but I think it's, it's okay. I don't think you should stop writing horror. I don't, unless you, you want to, I don't think you should content, keep yourself from writing any type of, of, of story element that you want, putting it in there. Um, I want, you think you should be aware of the knife you're using. And then once it's out, you should be just aware that you're going to get what you get, you, whatever the consequences are of what you've done in terms of response that that may happen and just be ready to live with it. Um, we're all used to the idea that we may get positive or negative reviews, but you also might get hated because like, oh my God, I was so ableist in this book and I didn't realize it. And then do your, do your best to do better next time. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think it's we're 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 always having a conversation with the culture around us, uh, and especially if we're you know creating things and putting them out into the world, and yeah, like you said, you don't know how people are going to respond, and if somebody says, "Oh my gosh, this hurt me," um, I can't imagine not being apologetic or being like, "Oh, whole, oh my gosh, I, I didn't. That was not my intent." The thing I always and your your book talks about this, and you know some other writing books I've talked about too is the things that are actually important to tell the story. If as you're reading your, your, your work or you're editing your work, if you come to a thing where you're like, well, I don't, I don't have to say anything about this person's disability or their skin color or uh, their sex. Like that's not important for the story. And it really depends on what type of story you're writing. Um, how have you seen, I mean, obviously culture, it, it changes all the time daily sometimes how have you seen, I mean, you've, you've already kind of answered somewhat like seeing your work shift with culture as you're, as you're more aware, is that, are there things that you've written in the past where you're like, I wouldn't write that now? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, not as much. I mean, there are things that I've, I've changed in that, you know, I live in an increasingly diverse world, so I will put, you know, I'll have somebody with an Hispanic surname that it doesn't matter. They could have any surname because of what the story is, what the role in the story is, but it helps me add a little bit of diversity. Uh, I'm more aware of character sexuality than I might be otherwise. Cause if they're not dating anybody and there's no sex in the story, it, it might not come up, especially in short stories, but I'm a little bit more aware of that and trying to, you know, portray the, the, the overall, you know, world around me, but I'm trying to do it in such a way that I don't try to tell the stories of people. I'm not, um, you know, like in a story that goes to the core identity, you know, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm a cishet white guy, but if I wanted to write about a black gay woman, um, for the sake of diversity, I'd have her in the story, but I'd focus on the problems she was dealing with in the story and problems she might have as a basic human. Like I know what it's like to struggle to pay the rent, or I know what it's like to struggle with a health problem. 
And so those things, I'd be perfectly comfortable. If I had to, if I tried to write, you know, what is the story of being, you know, a gay black woman in 21st century America, there's no way in hell I will ever understand that. I can never possibly do enough research. Uh, and it's not my story to tell. So I would never even try to do that. Uh, but when I was younger, I mean, writers would do that all the time. You know, it's like, you know, here's the white guy writing about 17th century Japan <laughs> and all the characters are from that perspective. And it was, it's right. a, it was a big attraction for writers to, immer- to learn about a new world and immerse themselves in a new world and a new point of view. Um, they weren't trying to steal anything. They were creatively attracted to it. But I think that probably that it's probably better to leave stories like that to people who either have a more natural claim to it or they just have a better perspective on it. They can connect to it probably better than you can. That said, you should still write whatever you want and see what happens. Yeah. Well, I think that's a big distinction, though, is instead like instead of writing about their core experience as uh, a gay black woman, you're writing about a thing that this character who happens to be a gay black woman is experiencing. I think that's where the distinction. um, I think some writers maybe forget that, or it's hard to hang on to that thing. Like I'm not writing about that experience. I'm writing about the time that this person went outside and a tree attacked her with a knife. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I think about it like a a casting kind of thing and like a movie, like in the latest, uh, the new star Trek, strange new worlds. Um, You know, it's set on the enterprise before Kirk Kirk took over, but some of the characters that are there are also eventually in the regular Star Trek. And one of them is the transporter operator, yeah. Lieutenant Riley, who in the original series was white, but he's Asian now. And I'm not saying anything about it because you could cast anybody's Lieutenant Riley. All he does is like push the buttons and say, I don't know if I can do it. Oh, good. I got him. They're coming back. Anybody could do that. You could change the gender if you wanted. It doesn't matter. So that works good in movie and TV because we can see people's races. We can see the diversity. So we have to work a little bit harder to, to describe somebody. Um, I understand the idea that you shouldn't, some people say don't describe anybody's race unless it's important, but I think it's important to show a diverse world. So at least, so I do that kind of casting thing where it's like, if it doesn't matter, then maybe I'll make this person Asian. Or I'm like, I haven't done anybody from who's Polish for a while. So maybe I'll just pick a Polish surname, anything. Yeah. So, and, and I just think that works better to remind people we live in a diverse world. And again, like you said, I just focus on the story problem with them. And then the normal human things anybody might deal with. Right. Well, in the, in the beginning of, I think it's in the, the writing in the dark workbook, um, you talk about, um, not being sure if you should write a, a, a teaching book, which we sort of touched on already. Um, and the, the phrase that leapt out at me is having doubts about a project has never stopped me from plowing full speed ahead. Um, and I loved that. And I, the, the big question I had is, as a as a writer now, like you've you've written a ton of stuff, um, you have awesome stuff out there. Do you? Or what's your experience now? And maybe juxtapose it with your experience, you know, before when you were learning all of these things, with coming up with an idea, and then like maybe having a sort of like morning after feeling where you're like, oh my god, that's stupid. Um, what's your experience, and and how do you deal with that? Is that is that maybe sometimes indicative that the idea is not there yet? Or is how do you figure out if it's just old self-doubt creeping in? Just plow ahead and see how it turns out. Literally just write it? Yeah. And then, because I mean, it's the only way to find out. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, the very first uh, professional story I had published, and I found out uh, just by accident during a, uh, a workshop at a con 
uh, Gary Bronbeck and uh, Charles Finley, who just re- until recently was the editor of FNSF, we were all asked a question, how did you know when your work had moved from an okay level to professional level. And we told the same exact story. We didn't know this. We were working on a story. We knew it was the very best story we'd ever written. And we panicked and stopped two thirds of the way through afraid (laughs) we're going to screw it up. But what we did was we took a deep breath and went back to it. Yeah. And a lot of times that's what I do is I just take a deep breath and go back to it. Um, If it turns into a piece of crap, so what? I don't have to send it anywhere, Uh, but it's not going to be anything if I don't keep going. Um, and over the years, it's that part's gotten easier because I can look back at everything I've done and I'll be like, I don't know if I can do this thing, but I didn't know if I could do all those things either. Uh, like right over that way is like, those are my published books back there. And over that way is all the extra copies that I need <laughs> to get rid of. But, um, I can look at those sometimes and remind me, yeah. uh, the fear when you get older is that you're going to decline and you're never going to be, <laughs> you know, you're losing something as you go. Right. Um, the hardest thing for me sometimes is the tie-ins because if I'm doing one for supernatural or I'm doing the novelization of Halloween you know, kills, I'm like, there are millions of people out there, all of whom would write their own story a different way or interpret this a different way. And it's hard sometimes to forget them and just go forward because you want to kind of second guess things. But I, I often tell people the, the writing really is a series of making choices and decisions one after the other. And I'm usually pretty decent about that. Even if I'm not sure if it's any good or not, I'll just pick one and go. And I think a lot of times the the more you can not belabor a a decision or a choice, the easier it is. It's another reason to write in the morning because there have been studies about something called decision fatigue, where if you make too many decisions during a day, eventually you can still make them, but they'll suck because you're incapable of making good ones. So if you do it in the morning before you... Yeah, it's, it's something less like five years they've been doing research on it. So it's like people that work all day long. After about three hours, all their decisions suck. So, you know, if you write early in the morning, the decisions you make, or at least before you make a lot in the course of your day, you're liable to make better ones. And so that's another reason why I do it. It seems to work pretty good because, you know, yeah. when I first started writing, I'd write late at night when everything was done. And especially when my kids were, you know, I'd, I'd only write once they went to sleep, but I was exhausted. I couldn't make decisions. I couldn't even decide which word to start with. <laughs> so I, I think sometimes just being able to make a choice and go, you know, and I would, I learned that from being like in drama club and in high school band too. You know, the, the, the coaches, the directors would always be make that choice, make it strong. If it's a mistake, nobody's going to know because you didn't hesitate. And then you can correct after that. Um, and that really stuck with me. Because you can tell if somebody makes a mistake, if you're, too, you're guaranteed to make a mistake if you're too timid or afraid to just try it. So I try my best, but yeah, I still get afraid. I still second guess myself. I still have like the morning after regrets. I still have all these things, but I tell myself you've had all these things before. So hopefully this time it won't be true either. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that I've been learning throughout my own writing is it sort of feels like it's just... I'm constantly redefining the quote unquote failure. The idea of, like you were saying, this story didn't work out. It's not indicative. Always. It's not indicative of a flaw in in me as a writer, because potentially, you know, depending on what you find out when you, when you write the thing and it doesn't work out, but redefining failure and then moving forward with knowledge. It's kind of, it's kind of almost like a, the scientific method where you are gaining knowledge and then re redirecting your, your 
forward momentum to, to new areas. Right. Yeah. And in science, remember every experiment, most of them are failures. Right. That lead you to, you know, hopefully a good path. Uh, but yeah, if you if you get to a point where you're doing stuff and it's right all the time, it means you found a safe formula, safe place. So you're not trying to stretch yourself. And that doesn't mean you can't write your safe thing. If I had a best-selling mystery series, you know, I just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I do my best to make them different, but if they were kind of the same and I was still making money, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. But when I but I would still do other things where I would experiment and try something new or something different. Do you think that's something that modern writers shy away from the idea of making money with it uh, or, or of just being honest about it? Like, like, yeah, hell yeah. I love writing, but hell yeah. I also love eating and having clothes <laughs> and right. being able to take care of myself. Is that something that we, I don't know. It, it almost feels like we went so opposite in one direction. Like we just kind of go back and forth where we're like, hell yeah, get paid. Um, right. Or, or then like, but you got to love art. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Where do we, where does it fall for you? Um, it can be it, it can be either one. Whenever um, you know, some things I'll do for art. Some things I'll do, you know, for art, but with more with an eye toward making money. Um, it's all good. Whatever goals writers set writers set for themselves are good, and you don't shouldn't listen to anybody else telling you what your goals should be. It's one of the things I hate about Twitter. There's all this, you know, you have to do it this way. This is the only way to think of it. This is it's, this is the right thinking way, and it's like any way you want to do, it's fine. Um, and there's not, there's something absolutely magical about creating art, but there's something magical about, uh, creating commercial art. You made something from nothing and just, yes, it's words on a page, but they're just signifiers of ideas. People are paying you for your thoughts. You've created thoughts that people like so much that they're willing to give you money. And along with their time and attention, which is probably just as important as money. That's pretty awesome. How many people can do that? So if you can write something and make money at it and somebody tells you, you should be, you shouldn't be worried about money, tell them to go to hell. Um, <laughs> you know, you're not going to get rich probably in any kind of art, regardless of what you're going to do. Yeah. But doesn't mean you shouldn't get as much money as you, you need. I mean, you live in a world that you're forced to get money to survive. You know, if we all had our needs met, like in Star Trek, they probably don't get a paycheck. They, all their food comes from a machine. They probably get free rent wherever they're at, you know, and so they can just focus on self-actualization all the time. Uh, we can't always do that. I wonder if that changes art, like lessens it, takes the bite out of it. If you're in a world where, if you're in a utopia, is there no horror written in a utopia? Maybe not. The horror could be very different because it could be, oh no, the replicator broke and I don't know how to cook. And that's a, that's a horror story. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> right, right. It's, re- it's really hard to say, but I mean, it's part of human psychology to fear things. So, yeah. Uh, but I do think about that sometimes when I was really young, I thought if we get into a world like star Trek, what the hell am I going to write about? Yeah. <laughs> everything's going to be wonderful at that point. I mean, you could write other types of stories, but most of them would be, it's another wonderful day in the Federation. Here we are. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you can always write about, you know, exterior, uh, dangers, wormholes, giant, uh, space, right. jellyfish, right. all kinds of stuff. And they might write about the past. A lot of people do that now. Filmmakers are doing that just to get away from cell phones and the internet. Yeah. You know, the story set in the seventies for no reason whatsoever, other than that they just don't have that extra help. So yeah, let's talk about that. Do you, what's your opinion on that? Do you try to steer clear of cell phones or if you're writing a story and you want to set it in modern day, how do you, how do you deal with that? The idea that what? somebody could just be like, well, just call 911. They'll come right to us. Yeah, no, I, I always make sure that the internet and cell phones are there and people use them the way they would. But I also know 
you know, people who sit back in a horror movie and like, oh, I'd call 911. And I'm like, dude, Jason is coming right at you with a machete. You don't have time to get your phone out and unlock it and hit those little. And you couldn't even like you couldn't even press the buttons right. If you know what people happens to people with adrenaline, all their motions are bigger. And you'd drop your damn phone uh, or whatever. There's just no way you'd have time to call 911. Besides, if you do, Jason just kills the cops when they show up and you got an extra right. scene. You know? He's going to give them more people to kill. Right, right. And the internet, you know, it's a lot of times people use it as a cop out. And it's like, oh, this tells us all, like in Supernatural, they do that. This tells us exactly how to kill this monster we never heard of. Um, you don't have to do that. There could be a hint or two in there maybe, but there might not be anything about it. Um you could get injured, which would keep you from like if your hands are injured, maybe you couldn't use your cell phone. There's all kinds of ways to get around that stuff. But you don't have to do the, you know, I, I dropped my cell phone in the toilet so it doesn't work, or I was running and it slipped out of my pocket. Right. I, I make it a personal challenge to find ways to integrate them into the the you know the internet and the cell phone to integrate them into the story in a way that seems believable, still doesn't solve all the problems. Yeah. Well, I, and you talk about specifically the adrenaline. Uh, the way people react to scary situations um, and scary situations, probably undersells, you know, the situations people are dealing with and horror stories, right. Um, the fear and how it changes your body. Like if, if you're not showing your characters like flop sweating and they're like crying in the bathroom after Jason swings their best friend into a tree while he's in a, a, a sleeping bag, then there's an aspect of the story missing. How, right. how did you end up around? Like, did you read a story that guided you there? Or is that just something where you're just like, these people, like, if that happened to me, I would be shitting my pants terrified. Right. I need to put that in my story. Right. Yeah. I forget exactly where it was, but somewhere along the way, I read or saw a documentary, you know, TV show, something about the gunfight at the OK Corral. And when they diagram it, they show how close these guys were to each other. And they kept missing. And it's because in an actual battle, it's really hard to aim because all your emotions are exaggerated because they're fueled by adrenaline. So if you try to move your arm three inches, you move it 10. Uh, (laughs) And this is one of the reasons why they drill you so hard when you're a soldier. So when you're in those kind of situations, your muscle memory won't be affected as much by adrenaline. Right. Uh, So, yeah, it's really important to know that. Plus, it's important just to know how your particular character might react. Uh, Because none of us do. I mean, everybody's like, it's like everybody thinks they would survive in a zombie apocalypse. And, you know, and I I ask my students sometimes, what's the first thing you need to get? They're like, guns, ammo. And finally somebody goes, you need a water supply and you need some food. (laughs) And I'm like, yep, you'll die in a few days without water. Yeah. Uh, And and if you have a lack of food, you're not thinking right. Um, Brian Keene wrote a really good book called Entombed, which is – uh, about p- a zombie apocalypse, but it's the people who get into like a military facility and are sealed away. There are no zombies in the story. It's just they're becoming malnourished and dehydrated and they're not thinking right and what that does to them. And they become a huge menace to each other just because of this. You, so you need to know like what would your character do? Even if your character doesn't know, what would your character do when they are pushed? Do they resort to violence? Would they run? Yeah. You know, would they just stand there unbelieving? Would they tell themselves it's a dream and end up getting eaten because they just refuse to believe what's happening? You need to know that. You need to know how it changed. You need to know what they'll do if they're pushed beyond their breaking point. Um, having everybody react the same way, too, is, is no good. I mean, that's at least one thing good about Scooby-Doo. Shaggy and Scooby act one way and Daphne acts one way and Fred and Velma. They're kind of together, but still slightly different. 
So you should think about that. And I think that, uh, you know, you don't have to pick up my book, just Google, you know, fear effects on people or whatever. There are all kinds of good articles out there that'll tell you. Yeah. And you don't have to go into it in a lot of big deal. I really like too the thing you, you mentioned about the reaction because people don't do that. When the, one of the things I see them do when they write, whether they're beginners or professionals, it's nobody has any impact later on. Uh, occasionally you'll have somebody that vomits, you know, after it's over very quickly, but otherwise you don't have the person that becomes catatonic. That was great. What was great about the first night of the living dead was that Barbara, who seems like she's our main character, she goes catatonic after everything that happens and just kind of sits there. And people are like, why does she do that? And I'm like, dude, it's, it's exactly what somebody might do. At any rate, it's what she did. Yeah. Right. Yep. Well, yeah, I, I loved all that. You go into it. I highly recommend they pick up your book because it has a, an appendix with a bunch of sources and stuff in the back that does cover those things, the, the other books that you talk about. Um, I really liked, um, I forget, I've heard other people say, you know, characters, you have to have your characters not just react, but be proactive. Um, they they do have to react, but they also have to make decisions and be proactive. I remember it was the, and I, I hate it was the first season of the walking dead TV show. And I was still curious about it. There was this character who, um, he was a black guy and, uh, uh I forget who the, there was another character chained up. He was an insanely racist character. Um, and they had the character, the, the black man with the handcuff keys and he was going over. You don't know what he's going to do. And he trips and drops the handcuff keys through a gap in the, in the roof. And, it was so upsetting to me because they took away the opportunity for him to make a choice to either choose to do something or to not do something. And that's a lot of what you, I mean, you cover that in your book too. It's having your characters change how they're rea- reacting, but also acting on things and how important it is for storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a situation like that, if they, dropping the keys gives you even greater chance for drama because the only way now to help that person is to physically be close. I mean, you could toss him the keys and walk away because you don't want him to die, but you don't want anything to do with him because he's a racist bastard. But now you have to maybe help the racist bastard get away from zombies, putting your own life in danger. You like it more that he dropped them? Well, if he, if he gone and done, you know, if they, they send it a different way, because, you know, making things, making stuff harder on your characters is always good. Yeah, but you, that keeps them still trying stuff. But the idea of characters being, uh, you know, proactive—they are in fiction more proactive than we probably are in real life. You know, in real life, we spend a lot of time hoping. We're like um, Sean in the Sean of the Dead. We want to go to the Winchester, have a pint, and hope it'll all blow over. <laughs> right. And that's very realistic. I mean, who, which one of us wants to put ourselves into to danger? So, if you're going to make them proactive, uh, it helps if it's something like Poltergeist, where you got to stick around because your little girl's stuck in the spirit world, attached to the house. Right. And even then, some parents just could not bring themselves to go back in because they're too traumatized. Uh, and, and that was great because the parents send their teenage daughter away because they don't need her there. They're not going to put them. her in danger. Um, but yeah, so but horror stories in a lot of ways are reaction stories. Your life's going along just fine till something bad starts to happen. And then, yeah, you do have to make decisions, but a lot of times they're instinctual because you may not have a time to sit around and think for three or four days about how you're going to deal with the, the haunting in the house. You kind of have to do it right now. Um, but yeah, having at least them be a little more proactive. Usually what I'll do is I kind of get them to be to to take more control about two thirds of the way through. You know, they've had enough and they realize they've got to do it. Um, the characters that can't do that often are just dead by that point. 
uh, <laughs> or who knows, they get taken over by the evil. You know, they just, they just fail. But having a character that's ready to take on everything right at the beginning, I mean, that's like uh, the second Aliens movie. Uh, all the, the, you know, they still get wiped out, but the Marines are ready to go. They're not afraid. There's nothing that makes Aliens a horror movie. It's an action movie. Right. But the first one, no, none of them. <laughs> they're not trained to deal with agent. I mean, aliens, they don't have any weapons. Uh, they're just regular, everyday kind of mining grunts that are just stuck doing this. And that makes yeah. that a horror movie. Um, another thing you talk about is the logic of the image. Um, and sp- I think specifically one of your uh, teaching colleagues had, had mentioned that you write about the logic and you center on the logic of the image. Mm-hmm. Um, explain what that means to me. Yeah, that would be kind of like some of the stuff that David Lynch does. It's like you could not explain the cause and effect that's happening or even what the hell the motivation is or maybe even what the scene is. But you can feel with all the weird stuff that's happening, you can feel in general this sense of dread or you can feel what is the, like the, the main character is like completely confused by what's going on and at lost and feeling smaller and smaller every moment. I mean, you can just get that from the images. And, you know, a lot of times too, I think about if these stories were real, I mean, how the hell would he ever know for sure what went on? I don't know most of the stuff that goes on in life around me. I don't know why things happen. I don't know what that weird noise was down the hallway. I never can figure it out when you go look for it. So if you had like a, you know, something like in Sinister and you got the Mr. Boogie showing up and getting these kids, you know, in real life, you're not going to have the one college professor that says, oh, well, it's really this ancient, you know, God they used to sacrifice children to. You'd never know what the hell that thing was. You'd be lucky to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah. So I, I think that in general, horror is a lot more effective when you have to deal with things like that, whether, whether it's an image. I mean, it is what it is, and it's doing what it does, and you try to respond to it, but nobody's going to tell you, you know, oh, it's it's a, you can kill it by freezing it. You can kill it by hitting it with electricity. Yeah. Well, I that's a, a concept I hear about um, from people when they talk about sci-fi writing, too, about, like, we all have these phones with us. Like, we all have these insanely powerful phones with us, and the amount of us who actually know how they work is, like very very slim it's not that many of us and like you said we're confronted with things so many times in life where we're like i have no idea what the hell that was like right i saw this thing and i i don't have a clue um is that one do is there a a space in our head where we're like i just want you to answer the question Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i just want to know and that's one of the reasons why those sorts of stories do exist where it's like, Hey, this thing appeared, this is exactly what it is. And this is how we're going to take care of it. And that can be pleasing sometimes. Is that one of the reasons why we gravitate to those sometimes? Yeah, I think so. And I think throughout our lives, especially when we start getting stories as little kids, you know, everything's nice and clear beginning, middle and end. There might be a moral to the story. You know, we're used to the fact that stories give us everything we need in them. Um, And some people just aren't happy. You know, they're not good with the other kind. I like stories that are, are, keep my imagination. It's like you ring a bell and it keeps echoing. I like my imagination to keep echoing after it's done. Yeah. Um, but I'm okay too if there's an answer. Uh, it just doesn't, it's just not my favorite kind of thing. I love being in movies where you get to the end and somebody stands up. Literally, I've seen this a number of times. They stand up in the back and they say, What the hell was that? I, I love those. Saw, I went and saw a adaptation of No Country for Old Men. It was me and yeah. two other people. Uh, cause I'm in the middle of Indiana. So it was almost no one was there. Um, but the story, the, the movie ends, you know, it's Tommy Lee Jones giving that great speech and it's basically word for word from the novel. And as the credits roll, 
one of the other people stands up, turns around and looks at me and puts his arms up in the air and he goes, what? <laughs> I was like, that's the book, man. Like that's literally it. They, yeah, <laughs> they were waiting for justice and they didn't get it because that goes with the theme. No country for old men. Right. Yeah. Just, it, it's not a place for people that, that want comfort, that want justice, that want anything. You're just going to, it's just brutal life. And that's what it is. Yeah. Is, do you have a favorite sort of open or unexplained or kind of vague? Well, ending? a couple of them. I mean, one, it wasn't really unexplained, but Wolf Creek, because the th- the three kills in it are opposite what we expect. The worst one happens first, then the second worst one happens second, and the third one, you know, is pretty mild. Uh, actually, I think the guy gets away. And so because it didn't have that build, I mean, that was once when a guy did stand up and back and shout at the screen because it just didn't make sense to him. And the other one was when I went to go see Mother in the theater, Darren Aronofsky's Mother. So, you know, I, I, I'm done. You know, I drank my giant Diet Coke, so I'm in the bathroom peeing. And the guy next to me is theorizing about what it was. He's like, what, what did that represent? I know it represented something. I think it represents this. And I'm like, this is weird, but it's also cool. You know, and so we talked a little, you know, and he leaves. And as uh, he leaves before me. And when I leave, I see he's cornered somebody else down on the, you know, at the end of the hallway. And he's talking to them about it. And I think any movie that can do that to people, that's pretty awesome to oh, yeah, get them engaged powerful. that way. And he wasn't up, upset or angry. He was excited to talk about what this meant. Uh, I am sure many people in the theater where I was at was, they were very unhappy with that movie since the whole damn thing symbolic from beginning to end. Same with, same with us. A lot of people, I didn't get uh, all the symbolism in us. My wife had to turn to me and explain it all to me. Oh no. Yeah. That I, as soon as we left that movie, my friends and I, I was like, I'm going to need to watch that again. I, I yeah. know there was stuff going on on mm-hmm. layers that I didn't catch because it's just packed full of stuff. Yep. Yep. And that's, I, I bought the script for um, get out. Cause I wanted mm-hmm. to, it's got annotations and stuff and it, it's amazing because it really mm-hmm. is just packed with all of this amazing imagery and all these different mm-hmm. things happening in between what you're seeing. It's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Did you see the lighthouse? The, the Robert Eggers? Movie? Yes. Yes. I loved it. It's awesome. My famous favorite it. image is probably naked Willem Dafoe, like he's an Olympian god or whatever. With the light shining out of his face, it is amazing. Yes, yes. I was, I was pretty blown away by it. Uh, I already liked, you know, Eggers's other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, The Witch, which I think was the only one at that point. Right. But um, yeah, yep. amazing. Um, as we're wrapping up here, uh, another thing that your book does, I didn't expect it, and I was so insanely happy to see it is. Um, career advice, specifically about branding yourself and, and how to deal with your career. Um, I think that's one thing that writing books, obviously not everyone who's writing it is in a position where they're like, I want to sell my writing or I want to sell myself. But the idea of approaching these things, um, uh, for anyone who has ever seen you, they've seen your, your hat. Um, and you yep. talk about it in the, in the book about how yep. it's a, a branding tool. Um, talk to me about when you had, you thought about branding at some point early in your career or or where did you come to the, the idea of how you needed to start guiding yourself as a part of your art in a, in a way, because obviously some of it's, you know, disconnected. Yeah. You know, early on when I started writing, it was mostly just what you were known as, as your specialty, you know, were you a mystery writer? And then maybe it might be, was your stuff darker or lighter? Did you write humorous mysteries or did you write, you know, more serious science fiction or whatever? And that was about it. Other than that, you were just a writer. Uh, Somewhere along the way, 
especially starting to go to horror conventions, I would notice that people would sometimes do almost like cosplay. You know, they would have sort of a, 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 a an identity that way they would present. Um, and going to them, I would also get a sense that some of the writers were not exactly like uh, putting on a show, but they were more themselves in public, you know, a little bit. Uh, and then as time went by, you know, the internet hit and it's like, everybody's got a website and now how do you make your website look different? And so bit by bit by bit, it turned into, there were so many things out there in terms of writing so many people uh, you had to find a way to try to at least get yourself noticed um, some way, at least that you stand out. So you're not just like another writer that looks the same as all the other writers and says the same stuff and writes the same stuff. And so it just became more, more branding like that. And I no- learned it from other writers. I started noticing that a lot of people would have little taglines on their websites to kind of identify them. Uh, sometimes you, you would get that from, um, like movie stars, you know, they might say so-and-so is the, you know, the king of Westerns. And um, she didn't get it as much, but I started to see it a lot on the internet. I started to see it in social media too, where people would have sort of like, you know, a certain kind of avatar or whatever. Um, and it seems to be something that can work pretty well. Uh, I mean, my stupid hat was, it was like I say in the book, it was an accident. Yeah, uh, It's still the thing. Uh, when I went to StokerCon, I got in on Wednesday and the con wasn't going on. Somebody's still like, where's your hat? When I was at dinner, they're like, it's not the con. During during the uh, the MC speech, you know, he made a joke about hats and horror. And it was me and Josh Mallerman. And I was thinking, how the hell else am I ever going to get my name next to Josh Mallerman's <laughs> and anything? You know, he's a genius. Um, hottest thing in horror right now. And then just because I wear a damn hat, I get to be at least in one little place. You know, my name gets to be next to his. So you don't know how branding things will work. The, the biggest debate for a long time was whether women should use their sexuality in their branding, uh, you know, because you might wear like something like uh, like Elvira or whatever. I don't know. That might, you know, show your curves that might show your cleavage or something. And there was a debate about that. Are we taking ourselves seriously or not? Even if it's, you know, are we supporting expressions of sexuality if we do this or are we, you know, are we uh, support it, whatever. And, Things like that are up to the individual, I think. I don't see it as much as I used to, um, at least some of that. Um, so there's a lot of pluses and minuses. You know, I talk about them in the book, but I do think it's the kind of thing that can help. You don't have to do it if you don't want to. You don't have to do a damn thing, but write and get your writing yeah. out there. Well, I think once the – now that the world and especially some genres of writing and horror – I mean, StokerCon, I, I was so thrilled seeing the, the diversity uh, of everyone there and – as things start to shift away from heteronormative being the 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 default um, men using their sexuality uh, to promote mm-hmm. themselves, I remember reading a story about um, Nicholas Sparks, you know, getting his one million dollar deal for uh, the Notebook, you know, his one million dollar uh, advance, and it's because the dude was handsome. That mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that played a part into it, like his mm-hmm. face on the cover, writing these kinds of books. Um, that's a huge can of worms. Obviously we can't open at the, <laughs> the very end right. of the show. But. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you're using what you have yeah. and you know, you can't help the way you look or if you try to accentuate the way you look, so what? Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. We're all humans. Uh, you know, yep. we are attracted to what we're attracted to and I'm, it's, mm-hmm. you know, an interesting way to, to think about, uh, how we present ourselves. Right. Um, well, I, I super appreciate you coming by. Writing in the Dark and Writing in the Dark, the, wor- uh, the workbook are both out from Raw Dog Screaming Press. I cannot recommend these books enough. 
Um, like I said, I'm currently rereading the first one and working my way through the, the workbook alongside it. Um, I think they're amazing resources for writers, not just horror writers, because um, there's a lot of awesome stuff in there. Um, so, Tim, thank you very much for coming on. And thanks for those for the books that you wrote, because they're great. Well, I'm so glad you found them useful. And thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. Absolutely. Again, big thank you to Tim Wagoner for stopping by, and thank you for listening. Uh, go to rawdogscreaming.com to get a copy of Writing in the Dark and Writing in the Dark, the workbook. And then go to Tim Wagoner, that's W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R.com. Check out all of his books and pick up something that looks like it might be your style. Um, if you grab Writing in the Dark or Writing in the Dark, the workbook, or both, uh, shoot me a line, uh, email me, tweet at me, whatever. Let me know how the book hit you. Uh, I want to hear from other writers and, and see if they got some uh, of the awesome insights that I did out of it. Um, literally just because I love the books. Uh, I think they're great and I think they're cool resources that are really going to help some people because they really helped me. So uh, I'll keep you informed on whether or not that story that I wrote and sent to the anthology gets picked up uh, or not. Um, in the meantime, keep writing. Keep thinking about writing. Keep telling other people about writing because it's amazing. Uh, talking to each other through stories is one of the ways that we get to see how human we all are. So keep doing it.